1: My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with David Bellows. It's June 22nd, 2023. We're at Comprey Vineyard in Newburgh. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Uh, The first question to get you started is why wine?
2: Why wine? Oh man, that's a, ready to even start on that one. Um, Yeah, I guess, I guess, I didn't really have any experience with wine. I'm not like a fourth generation winemaker. Both my parents were kind of you know, children of the depression and didn't, I think, and all four of my grandparents were teetotalers, so I don't think either of my parents had had a glass of wine until they were out of college and, you know, starting a family. So wine was not something, you know, in our daily experience uh, growing up. Um, my dad did own some, it turned out, did own some grapes in the Central Valley just as an investment in the 70s, but you know, it had nothing to do really with with the consumption of wine. And it really wasn't until I got to college, I think, that I discovered wine. Um, And it was, I guess, not serendipity, but um, Providence. One of my roommates in college was the manager at a market in Dana Point, California, and he ran their wine program. And so he started inviting me to kind of trade tastings. And then at the same time, I started working my way. I was at San Diego State at the time. Um, I was working my way through college, and I had a job at the Intercontinental Hotel. working as a bartender in the restaurant there, and they had a Cruvenet, which I don't know if anybody knows what those are anymore, but it's a it's a, it's a, big box. It's got an argon system, so you could ha- pour glasses of wine and keep them for several days so you wouldn't have to. So you have a, a, an extensive buy-the-glass program. I think we had a 16-valve Cruvenet. So you have 16 different wines on tap um, at any one time. And so that's where I really started to understand the differences between Wines and really start to um, kind of enjoy them, but without any idea that it would be my my life. Um, and then after after San Diego, my then girlfriend, now wife, um, we picked up and moved to New York City um, in the middle '80s, uh, which was an exciting time in New York City. <laughs> I mean, it's always an exciting time in New York City, but. <laughs> But it was a particularly exciting time in New York City, um, and I was lucky enough. Again, Providence. Uh, I was lucky enough that the the beverage manager at the Intercontinental, who I had worked with and who had really started to introduce me to to wine um, in our by the glass program, he had worked for kind of a legendary restaurateur in um, in New York, and. Um, and he was actually quite a good influence because he was like, "Yeah, you know, journalism—that's cute and all, but you know, you're going to need a job when you get, <laughs> when you get to New York City." Um, and so he gave me the name of the people that he had worked for, and just as it so happened, they had—they were going through some transition at the time, and I just happened to be able to slot in, and um, and it was—it was for a, fam- a fairly famous restaurateur is Joe Baum. Um, he started Windows on the World and, and hired Kevin Zarelli who started the, the Windows on the World wine program. Um, and he was running the Rainbow Room at the time, which is the top two floors of the Rockefeller Center. And he had his own restaurant on 49th Street between Park and Madison called Aurora. Um, and the bartender, the head bartender at Aurora was moving to the Rainbow Room because it was just getting started to, to run the program there. and so. It was the everybody moved up one, and I slotted in at the bottom. And then just as people kept leaving, I just kept saying, oh, I'll do that. You know, just pay me a couple thousand dollars, I'll do that. And so after, I don't know, 18 months or so, I, I kind of had consolidated everything that was liquid within the restaurant. And um, I was then by de facto kind of beverage manager at this restaurant. And that's really when I um, uh, then wine became a career. You know, it went from being interesting and something that helped pay the bills uh, to something that was completely different. Because now, you know, the trade tastings in New York City are a completely different animal. You know, you can go and taste 75 Bordeaux, all one after the other, you know, the right bank versus the left bank, and you know, just taste through, you know, one one distributor would have just nothing but Burgundies. you know, and I, we had Neil Rosenthal would come in, you know, on a weekly basis, it seemed, and gave me a complete education in, in Burgundy, and that's kind of why I fell in love with with uh, Chablis. Circumstances kind of drove us out of New York City. The, the early 90s was a really exciting time to be living, living in New York City, so we kind of got driven, uh, we and all our friends kind of got driven out of the city at that time. Um, and my now wife and I ended up in Tucson, Arizona, um, actually after a, after a decompression year we stopped in Sun Valley, Idaho and I was a beverage director at a resort hotel in, in Sun Valley for a year. And um, kind of learned more about, interestingly, wines of the, the Pacific Northwest then because that's what the, one of the restaurants that I ran. Um, specialized in. Um, so I got my first taste of kind of Washington Merlots and and very early tastes of, of some Oregon Pinots at that time. And then we ended up in Tucson, Arizona. She was getting her uh, PhD at the University of Arizona. And um, I found it very difficult to find a job in Tucson at the time. Um, they didn't seem to want to see a two-page resume from New York City. <laughs> um, and so she, I had, you know, still have this, great, this same great wife, She said, "You know, there's this window in your life that's going to be open for one second. You know, and what what do you want to do? Because then it's going to go." <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, I'd really like to be a winemaker, but it's all this chemistry, and I don't even know where the chemistry building is at my old school." So, um, so she said, "Well, you know, why don't you just call UC Davis and just see what they say?" Um, and. Uh, Inter- so interestingly, I did. I just got on the phone and called UC Davis. And and they and the secretary said, oh, well, I'll put you through to someone. And Ann Noble answered the phone. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like if you called Cold Spring Harbor and James Watson picked up the phone, right? And I was like, I didn't know who she was at the time. But now it seems absurd that Ann would be answering random students' phone calls, right? Um, and I explained the situation to her, you know, that I now wanted to do this whole new thing. Um, And she said, oh, God, you're a retread like everybody else in our program. She's a former English major, now wants to be a winemaker. Um, She said, I still remember that. I can picture the phone call right now. She said, take take a chemistry class. You'll probably get a C. Don't worry. You can still get in. (laughs) We get 25 applications. I mean, 50 applications a year, we take 25 people. She said, if you pass, if you like it, take another one. If you like that one, call me in a year. And so I did, but now I'm the 30-year-old guy who's run a three-million-dollar bid. You know, I'm this guy in the front row. You know, so um, so it turns out, unbeknownst to me, I was really good at chemistry. I had no idea. Um, maybe it was just because I was really interested in it. Um, and so I called her back in a year, and she said, "Okay, well, you know, clearly you've got the." The interest, so I'll send you this list of classes, um, and then you know, go ahead and take them. And then, they, then, you can, then you can apply to our master's program. And it was, just, it was effectively the, a template for the biochemistry degree at the University of Arizona. So I thought, for another six units, you know, I can have a second bachelor's degree if I'm going to have to go through all this pain anyways. So that's what I did. I, I, I enrolled in the biochemistry program at the University of Arizona. Um, and again, Providence <laughs> stepped in. They had this fantastic program called UBRP, the Undergraduate Biological Research or Biology Research Program, and it was it was funded by Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the NSF, I think, at the time. It was it was just it was very it was nascent at the time. But the idea was, undergrads could work in a laboratory for a for a professor. You you were like a mini grad student. You got to work full time in the summer and then part time during the school year and they paid you for it. But most importantly, you got to work on the same project for multiple years. You were like a mini master's student. Um, And that just opened my eyes to, you know, that was the, he seduced me with the the shiny toys of the laboratory and I got completely distracted from from my intent and fell in love with laboratory work. And so I I uh, I did not even I ultimately did not apply to Davis. <laughs> I ended up um, enrolling in a PhD program in molecular biology at a big medical school on the East Coast. So I aimed here and I hit here. Um, but had I mean it was a fantastic time. I I you know I got trained as a scientist, um, I learned to think critically. It was again, it was like the eighties in new york city there 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 were fascinating things going on in the early nineties in molecular biology and cell biology and and it was just a thrilling period um, and so I stuck with that so uh, upon my graduation, I was a scientist, and i didn't you know uh, wine was not in my thoughts. well, it was a little bit because I, when i went to when I went to do my postdoc, I picked yeast as my model organism, the same yeast that makes wine, beer, bread, and whiskey, um, so that I could, you know, close the circle if I wanted to at the end, um, which I've now done. Um, and so that was fascinating too, you know, just delving into the inner workings of yeast for 20 years, basically, is what I then did. Um, and I was a uh, I was a a breast cancer research fellow at a a, a research institute in Toronto, Canada. That's where I really first um, became a yeast geneticist. I had this really fun project um, that was interesting to other people as well. And so after five years, there was this university in New Zealand that wanted to get my exact project off the ground. Um, And we don't have enough time to explain what the project was, but... um, But, so I was recruited to this university, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, and became an assistant professor of biology at my own research lab. And we were doing, um, we were doing work using the the yeast deletion set, which won't mean anything to any of the people in your Uh, Who were watching this, but it was a heady time. It was the kind of the the beginning of genomics Um, And I had a collaboration with a a natural products chemist uh, down there who was a a Diver so we would go diving in Tonga and pull up sponges and sea cucumbers and things like that and he'd grind them up and look for compounds that were He'd never seen before at high concentration, and then I had a system that would kind of point the direction of what the mechanism of action might be, and so I did that for a number of years, and then the the grant to grant lifestyle was kind of killing me slowly and then quickly, um, and so I said, well, I kind of you know I put my brick in the wall, graduated some PhD students, and you know published my twenty five papers or whatever it was um so i you know said it. all right, that's it this is, this is i'm either gonna <laughs> we're gonna stick with it i'm gonna die of a heart attack in four years or we gotta do something else, so I decided to pivot and um and we repatriated my wife and i repatriated- repatriated to uh the Willamette Valley, and I just started doing everything in the wine business. I started working on the bottling line. Um, I worked in the tasting room. I worked in the cellar. I did you know multiple harvests in the cellar. Went back down to New Zealand and did a, a harvest in the lab at a big winery at, in Marlborough, um, and just kind of just slowly worked my way up to here. Um, and we can get into the story of how I met Dawn and. And ended up here later, but that's that's the that's the overall story. <laughs> Serendipity has been the, the, the guiding.
1: <laughs> it's a wild story. I'm curious about uh, let's we'll talk about wine education first. We'll start with that. So uh, you mentioned wine becoming part of your life later than than some. So tell me about once you discovered wine and started were interested in wine. How did you educate yourself on wine, and what did you find attractive about wines that you liked?
2: Oh yeah, well, that is an interesting question. So you know, I just kind of well, back then there weren't as many resources, of course, you know, in the in the 80s. Um, I think I about well, I actually I knew Kevin Zarely, so <laughs> so, so I, um, I didn't take his class, but um, Fred Price, who was running the wine program at the Rainbow Room, was running kind of a mini. Um, Windows on the World Wine course for the, the the staff and the other sommeliers and things at Rainbow Room. And so because I was a, you know, beverage manager at the other restaurant, I was able to get in on that. And so I, I had this kind of mini course in um, in different varietals that was helpful. I bought Kevin Zarelli's book and I just read it. <laughs> that was the, uh, but I think the most, emb- I mean really it was, I mean, the funny thing was, you know, we all got back in the 80s. No one had the WS. There was no, you know, there were no uh, diplomas or anything to get. We all got the job in exactly the same way, you know. Everyone, we just lied and said we had 10 times the experience that we said we had, you know. And And then, you know, the funny thing was in New York City, you know, once they conferred the mantle of, you know, New York wine guy on you, you know, then that became what you were, right? And if you just kept your mouth shut for six months or didn't say something, you know, really stupid, you suddenly start getting invited to all these trade tastings. And by within about six months, you then had the experience that you'd claimed to have in the beginning, right? And so that's, and everybody I knew did that exact thing. They started out as a barback or a waiter and then, you know, same thing. They kind of moved up, and then they just some, someone just handed them the wine list and said, "Okay, you know, go." <laughs> and so I think that it was it was being in the business and going to like weekly tastings where you just tasted 30 or 40 different wines at a time. That that was the you know that was the experience that really did it, where you can now see kind of the you know what's the difference between a Pouligny Montrachet and a Chassagne Montrachet, even though they're you know, a hundred yards apart on the road, <laughs> there are you know these subtle differences, especially back then.
1: What what attracted you to the wines that you liked?
2: Oh, um, yeah, I kind of fell in love with Burgundy. Well, you know, the restaurant, I mean, it, we were heavy. We had a we had a Michelin two puffs chef, um, and so from I think was it a restaurant in Paris? You can edit all that out because I can't remember where he's was from, um, but. So we were, you know, the wine list was heavily weighted into uh, into Burgundies, and so I really kind of just fell in love with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because it was like two thirds of our wine list, right? Um, and I think I liked, you know, I liked the fact that Pinot Noir was this chameleon that you would take, you know, you take a sip. or, or, you know, a smell, and you'd set it down and you'd be drinking, you know, you'd be eating dinner and talking and then they'd pick it up again 10 minutes later and take another sip and it was a completely different wine. You know, the air had gotten to it and now it had different characteristics or different aromas that it had 10 minutes ago. And I found that, that's just, I've continued with that. I've always found that incredibly appealing. And, you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, Tend to you know, the ones I like tend to be kind of more acid driven. They they have this vibrancy. They um, you know they just make you want to take another sip, and that's 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 it. And that's why we picked Oregon. Um, you know, it, we it was the Pinot region. Um, I'd always loved Pinot. Um, Wellington, New Zealand, where we lived was. Hundred kilometers from kind of the North Islands Pinot region in Martinborough, so I had a lot of experience drinking Martinborough Pinots. Met some of the winemakers there. Um, we actually tried to get some some wine uh, grants going, but you know, there's just so it, New Zealand's such a small country. It just was not. It, it's like if, if Oregon was a country. They're exactly the same square miles and have the same population. And they even have mountains around. I mean, New Zealand and Oregon are very similar to each other. This looks just like the part of the North Island where we used to live. Yeah.
1: Sounds rough. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about you mentioned kind of getting your education on the job as, yeah. as a wine director, yeah. first of all. So tell me about running a wine program, especially running a wine program in New York City at that time.
2: Yeah. Um, oh, man. That was. Yeah, I was trial by fire because um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything, right? Um, fortunately, Joe. I mean, Joe would kind of. He was famous for. Um, I mean, we used to say people either worked for Joe for twenty-one days or twenty-one years, and nothing in between, right? You either you either blew up or you loved him and finished your career with him because um, Joe was great because um, he'd he just keep giving you enough line you could just go as far as you could go until you couldn't you know until you stopped and then either fire you or you <laughs> you know um, so it was kind of a it was kind of a it was kind of a playground. I think um, Ray Wellington had built the the first wine list there. So really I didn't have something you know I didn't have anything I didn't have to build it from scratch to Nova I had this fantastic wine list to start with. And then over the kind of a couple of years that I ran it, I could just slot in things that I liked. You know, as we ran out of things I liked, as I learned about them and, and things like that. Um, um, I think I th- I would say, I mean, working for Joe was actually as good an education as um, as getting a PhD, um, because he paid attention to everything. Um, and he made you pay attention to everything. Wow, so we had these, um, we had these banquettes, right, which are kind of couches. They're a table with, you know, like couches around them. And they, they were made out of they were Italian leather and they, um, they they had the christians came together and so it, it was the captain's job to like sweep out the banquette after each guest left so that you know no food or anything would get on their clothes you know just so it's was neat and tidy right and so so at morning you know at morning meeting before lunch once i, I remember joe comes up and he's got like four 10 dollar bills in his hand he said last week i put 10 10 dollar bills in the banquettes around the restaurant Today, I have four. So that means that there's some captain out there who's got 60 bucks in his pocket because he swept out the banquets. That's all he had to say. No one ever, you know, he didn't chew anybody out. He didn't, you know, he, he made you think. There are a couple other stories I can't tell, but, <laughs> but yeah. No, he was, he was a genius at motivating people and making you, like, look around and, and pay attention. Um, uh, and he had a great staff I mean and that's where I first learned um, Lotus 123 <laughs> so I learned how to I learned how to build a spreadsheet and keep track of inventory using Lotus 123 um, yeah no I mean it was a, it was a it was a management program um, a master class um, I guess that's that's really yeah and dealing I mean having people like Neil Rosenthal who was very patient back then, would come in, sit at the table and explain that you know the difference between, you know, La Grenouille, uh Chablis and, and you know, Bougreau or something, you know. He was that was also a fantastic experience, the it was this little fraternity, you know. You, you keep seeing the same people at the all the different tastings and
1: things. So as you made the the sort of the, the, the strange pivot from that into into hardcore science. Yeah. Tell me about the, as you started down the path of chemistry and, and especially launched into yeast, tell me about some of the experiences there and some of the, some of your kind of favorite moments in, in, in academia.
2: Oh my God. Oh God. that's, oh wow. I, would, I, you should have sent me that question in advance. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay. All right. I guess... I guess I don't have a specific one. I mean, I think the thing that really attracted me to science, um, kind of from the start, working in the undergraduate lab at, at Arizona, and, and that, and, and he was like Joe Baum too. That was another, my professor was another fantastic guy. He was this Renaissance man. He was in, you know, he was at the end of his career, he was in the National Academy of Sciences, he'd been this, you know, lifelong entomologist. Um, and biochemist, and he really kind of, you know, opened the door and just like, you know, showed me into this room, this room of wonders, right? And so I guess the, I guess the thing that I've always said is that, um, it's, that it's the moment of discovery, it's the the, when you're developing the film or you're doing the final calculation on the, you know, calculating the curve on the experiment that you've done. And for one instant, you know that you know something that no one else in the world knows. And then you go running down the hall to your PI and go, you know, <laughs> we know this, right? And that, there's no feeling like that. It, um, and that'll keep you going for those Forty-five other experiments that all fail, right, or don't tell you anything or what you wanted to know. Um, but that, you know, that one moment will keep you going for another year, um, if it's a good one, you know. And it's you know, it's all these tiny little steps, right? You, that's, there's one thing that you find, oh, and then that leads to another question that you then have to design an experiment to answer that question and then you know once you know that then you can oh you know that leads oh well what does that what does that imply you know and so it's all these tiny little moments of discovery that I think was what science is all what kept me going.
1: As you specialized in in Saccharomyces uh, tell me tell me about uh, I guess developments with that, while you, while you were working on it, what were some of the big big discoveries or big moments for you?
2: Oh, um, a lot of them were external. Um, it was it was kind of a heady time. So the. I got to work with what's called the deletion set, and so the idea is that you know yeast are like they're like this 1967 VW Beetle of the eukaryotic world. They're, you know, we're like a Lexus. They're like this this little Volkswagen. They've you know they've got all the same kind of stuff that we've got. They got four wheels. They got an engine. They got a windshield. You know, we've got sat nav and stereo with 10 speakers and all that stuff. But it's the same basic outline, right? And so because they're so simple, they're they're easy to work with and many of their genes work in us and vice versa. So you can do, you know, like cancer discovery using yeast because it's the same blueprint. But at the time, so what they, the nice thing about yeast is they're very easy to work with. They they grow they double every hour and a half and you can you can do what's called a transformation, you can you can put a gene or take one out in yeast in a couple of weeks. And there's 6,000 6,000 genes in the yeast genome, and so over 13 chromosomes. And so what happened was, basically, 13 labs throughout the world each took a chromosome and they started knocking out genes one at a time until they had a set of yeast, 6,000 different strains of each, each one missing a a gene. And so my analogy is, if you had, if you had, if you had a car with 6,000 parts like the VW, and one day you were going to make 6000 different cars and the first car you left the left headlight off and the second one you left the right headlight off and then you know the the volume control knob on the stereo you know all the way through the car and you went and drove them out and parked them in the parking lot now you've got the the carnome deletion set and now you can start doing experiments on this grand scale over the genome So to to stick with the car analogy, you could you could wait till the hottest day of the year, have six thousand of your friends come and start all the cars at the same time and drive them away, and the ones that are stuck left in the parking lot all have something to do with the cooling system because they can't stand the heat, right? So now you can find all of the mutants that are involved in cooling in one shot, and you can do it. And because of genetics, you can do it the other way too. You can you can say, you know. if i If I change you know if I take one of my cooling mutants, what other mutants do I see and so we did the same thing. we have six thousand yeast genes we have six thousand yeast strains, each one missing a different gene, and so we were doing drug discovery that my coworker, my colleague in New Zealand was interested in in finding drugs, and so the idea was he would find these compounds within animals like sponges are non motile they 've got to stand and fight right and so The assumption was things that they're making at high concentration might be defensins, things that, you know, will poison other things. And so you could take, he would purify those and we'd put them on the the set of 6,000 deletions. And then you'd look for the guys that couldn't drive away. You'd look for the ones that couldn't grow. And if they all had something in common, then you'd say, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's affecting this thing. And the, the classic example is, cisplatin injures DNA. It's a common can- anti-cancer drug. And what it does is it, it, it makes DNA, it, it breaks up DNA. And so it, the cell can't keep going because it's, it's having a hard time replicating its DNA. And so at low concentrations, yeast and you and I are really good at repairing our DNA what you find is there are mutants that are not good at repairing their DNA. Those guys are super sensitive to cisplatin. But something that's, you know, involved in sugar metabolism could care less about cisplatin, right? A mutant that that is having a hard time making, you know, doing glycolysis still grows at the exact same rate. And so you can say, Oh, all the mutants I'm getting back are all these rad mutants, all these radiation mutants, all these DNA damage repair mutants. Maybe it damages DNA. And so that was the system that we that we did. And so some of the discoveries were things like you know, within systems of intercellular transport was one of the things that we found. One of the one of the drugs hit, you know. Um, but we were doing this, you know, on this massive on this grand scale using robots that would pin out the 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 yeast colonies onto different plates and yeah, And
1: I'm curious from that, you mentioned obviously it being a big part for cancer. So how, how, why breast cancer specifically? Oh. Were there any, any breakthroughs in there?
2: No, so, I mean, this, this comes back to being an academic. That I was a breast cancer research fellow because there was this, there was this fellowship that the, that the in fact it was the it was a Department of Defense it was a I was a U.S. Army breast cancer research fellow because the it turns out the Army employs a lot of people and and they get breast cancer and prostate cancer so they have a breast cancer research program and a prostate research program that was uh, funded through the um, the Congress but the Congress doesn't actually write checks they need to they can grant the money but the money needs to come from somewhere so the So the Department of Defense ended up with the actual funding arm. So um, you know, many cancers have have um, have similar causes, and so a gene that that you know affects breast cancer or prostate cancer, you know, if it exists in yeast, you can just you write the grant you know, that that's pointed towards breast cancer. But it was really, it was it was generally cancer, anti-cancer. We were we were looking at combinatorial drugs for cancer that, you know, if you could if one drug did a little something but didn't make you lose your hair and one drug did a little something but, you know, you didn't get nauseated, if you put them together, would it really nail the, the cancer cell without having some of the side effects that, that the super toxic when because the, the traditional anti-cancer agents are just like napalm, right? I mean, you just go in with a, with a, with a, with a big bomb and hope that you kill the cancer cells before you kill the patient. We were looking for a more tailored approach. If we knew the two different pathways that, that cancer was, was acting in, if we could hit it here and here, would that, you know, allow us to specifically just kill the cancer cells without killing the cells around it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, I didn't pick breast cancer, that was just the, the funding happened to be through there.
1: So from that part of your career, what are the, do you feel like are your biggest accomplishments or what do you, what are you sort of proudest of? <laughs> Sorry, <I> gotta ask.
2: <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. Um, Well, I guess I just, you know, if, just putting my brick in the wall. Just, you know, making, getting in there in the trenches and just making the discoveries and writing the papers and getting them out and training the next, um, training the next, replacing myself, training the next generation. Uh, that was the, the students were the fun part.
1: So you had talked about earlier about, obviously, the attraction to Pinot Noir bringing you yeah. to the, the Lambent Valley after that. Yeah. Um, so tell me about once you finally started down the path of becoming a winemaker all those many years later, yeah. uh, what were your initial winery experiences?
2: Oh, um, well, just, so on the, so on the way home cause our furniture took 16 weeks to get home, right? Cause we, <laughs> from New Zealand on the way home. I, I was, uh, I was in the Australasian, uh, what was it? The Australasian yeast group. Um, cause there are a bunch of other yeast biologists down there. Um, And so on the way home, while my furniture was working its way up to like Singapore and Beijing and all you know Alaska or whatever, we I I took a mini sabbatical and I stopped at the Australian Wine Research Institute in Adelaide for a couple months, and I was a visiting scientist there, and I just kind of you know talked to the other scientists about winemaking, and I started doing a few little little mini ferments just to get the because you know. I was using yeast as this very basic model organism. We were just growing them on plates in very rich media, and they weren't fermenting. They were, you know, we, weren't giving, we were giving them enough sugar to do their job, but they weren't, you know, doing their, their thing. So at the, at the Wine Research Institute, I really started to learn, in those couple months, kind of how fermentation actually worked. And then when I got back to, when we arrived here in the valley, um, Uh, The first year, I was a a vineyard sampler with a winemaker, not with Pinot, whose most of his grapes, even though the vineyard, the winery is in in Oregon, most of the grapes were in eastern Washington. And so we would drive the winery pickup truck out to eastern Washington and sample grapes a couple times a week. And so that's my first year, I just learned kind of how the process of grape maturation worked, went through the whole thing. And it was great because, you know, he needed a, a, you know, it's a long way out there, so he needed a driver. Um, and so we spent a lot of time just sitting in the cab of his pickup truck just talking about <laughs> you wine. Know, that, that was that was fantastic. Um, and then, And then when that harvest ended, then I went back to, I still had a driver's license and bank account in New Zealand. Then I went back down to Marlborough Sound in, in New Zealand and worked in a lab, did the, worked in an enology lab at a big winery that was made like, I don't know, 20,000 tons of Sauvignon Blanc, which is uh, 1.2 million, yeah, 1.2 million cases of Sauvignon Blanc in this giant, fermenters. But the lab was again, it was like it was like when I was an undergrad, it was this playground of Enology equipment, um, robotic samplers and and everything that you could imagine. So that was that was a good experience to see, you know, things like quality control in 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 calibrating your equipment and what kind of what kind of tests you do to make sure that things are, are running right, you know, what's the difference between accuracy and and um, and precision. Um, And then after that harvest, then I came back here and I had already gotten a ride with Rex Hill. Um, And so they said, oh, since you live here, why why don't you, you know, do you want to come up early and bottle with us? And not knowing what bottling was, I said, sure. Um, (laughs) uh, I found out that bottling is a young man's game. Yeah, because they are, you know, and they're, our bottling line is very charming. Mm -hmm. And um, but they they were serious about it, right? Because they're making three hundred thousand cases a year, so they're bottling two thousand cases a day for one hundred and fifty straight days, right? It's just it's the it's it's ten hours of the I Love Lucy chocolate factory episode, right? It's just relentless. Um, and then I thought maybe I don't want to be in the wine business because I I'm not I'm too old. I don't I you know I I only and I only worked for them for a few weeks. I mean it was they had this little window. I think I bought. 25,000 cases with them. <laughs> you know, it almost killed me. Um, they are in great shape. <laughs> um, so that was an eye opener. Um, and again, quality control. it you know, all about quality control. Um, we had oh, we had, this, we had this we had this fantastic one of the bottlers um, who worked at, like full time on the bottling line. You'd be putting bottles in boxes as fast as you possibly could, and like you know, every couple hours. She'd come up and say, This one has 11. You go, What? And you'd cut it open, and if, sure enough, it would have 11. You go, Did you x ray it? And she's like, I've been doing this for eight years. I know how much a case weighs. <laughs> this one has 11. <laughs> um, and then as soon as that was there, so that was like the last couple of weeks right before harvest. And then I transitioned immediately and went um, down into the cellar. Um, and worked my first harvest, learning what a pump was and and what a you know what a clamp was and and actually you know compared to Australia you know where the fermentation was this big, um, you know the kind of the scale of of winemaking and you know the first harvest I told this to Drew too you know the first harvest just kind of happens to you you have because from day to day you just have no idea what's what you know, you're like sure I can hold that hose for 10 hours, you know, I, I okay, oh, why not, you know, and then the next day, oh, sure, I can do that thing, what, why are we doing, okay, you know, um, and so, yeah, that first harvest, you know, I really kind of learned what the equipment was and how it all fit together, and then, um, what year was that? That was, so the, that very first harvest was 2011, um, with with Robert, um, and then that was the 2012, so my first harvest in the Valley was the 2012 harvest, and so that was another misleading thing, because you know, at the end of the 2012 harvest, you're like, I don't see what everybody's complaining about. This winemaking stuff is easy, right? Because that was the harvest we found out who the bad winemakers were, right? Because if you made a bad wine in 2012, it was, it was all your fault. That was the year that you just kind of mashed it up and let it go. And then, and then thirteen came right. And then I was like, oh, now I see. I this, this is how they make their money." <laughs> then, that, that was the year where everything, yeah, everything went wrong. So after the harvest, then, um, so they knew that I had had this experience in retail in selling wine, and so I actually stayed and worked in the tasting room at Rexhill. So that was my first experience, kind of in a in a tasting room. And so I, and so then I, I worked through the summer in the tasting room the next year in in 2013. And then went down, back down into the cellar in 2013. And then, now I could actually, you know, I knew what the equipment was and I kind of started to see how everything fit together and why they were doing some of the things that they were doing. that was the real kind of eye-opening harvest uh, for me. And then in the meantime, during 13, when I was working in the tasting room, we had this, um, I had a, a colleague in the tasting room who said, oh, you know, there's this guy across the valley who needs someone in the tasting room a couple days a week. And he's a scientist too. You should, you'd probably get along. So that's how I met. That's how I met Don, yeah. So I, in 2013, I came and I was just his tasting room guy a couple days a week when his original guy was off because he was trying to stay open seven days a week but, uh, at that time. And then we got to chatting, you know. We got to, we got to talking about uh, about science and wine, and that was kismet. That was, um, yeah. Yeah, and so then uh, in 2014, he invited me to move over to Vidon kind of full-time as his, I think my card said associate winemaker, but really it was, I mean, I worked in, you know, it was kind of the tasting room, and it was, it was the general winery everything. Um, I was really his kind of assistant winemaker. Um, uh, and did that for a year and a half, and then um, I moved to Aloro, uh, in Sherwood in 2015 and worked with Tom Fitzpatrick and that's that's where I finally got my Davis education because he's a Davis trained winemaker so I feel like I feel like that's where I got my Davis training um, and that was really that was a good experience um, I, he's, I really enjoy enjoyed working with Tom and then became his assistant winemaker um, did that through 16 and then at that point um, in early 17, Don then turned 85 and he got tired of digging out tanks by himself. And so we split the business. Um, he brought me on as his winemaker and he took over the marketing arm. So I was the production department and he was the marketing department. It was a two man. Operation and he'd kind of set it up. Well, we can talk about Donald, you know, he's an amazing guy. He'd kind of set it up so one person could, you know, really do 25 tons by themselves. That's so that's that was my experience. That's right. I, so I came on in 17, and that would that year we did 32 tons. Um, and you know, he helped with, with you know, pressing and the things where you just physically can't do it by yourself. But otherwise, it was just me in the, in the, in the production area, and he was out trying to sell wine, which is actually the hard part. It's you know the making; it's the easy part. Yeah. So then I stayed with him until 2019, and then he was getting to be, well, it was 88 then? Um, and at that point, he really he was starting to think about. He really wanted to, you know, re-retire. <laughs> um, and so he sold like 90% of his grapes in, in 19, so there just wasn't anything for me to, well, I mean, I could have done it, my my salary would have been like $500 a case. Um, he, he only made like 10 barrels worth of wine or something. Um, and so at that point, I just, I was uh, at the end of, I'd had a, three full careers, so. <laughs> I um I retired in 2019 and I had a I'd had a harvest injury that I was repaired in 2019 and the the um the the recovery period was quite long so it it was kind of it was it was a good time to step away and I I actually really enjoyed retirement and then you yeah, know then I get a call <laughs> at, the, at the end of 2020 from Don like would you want to be the winemaker here again so that's and then uh, that was uh, the new owners uh, purchased the the winery at the end of uh, 2020, and I agreed to come back and and they had never they were like they were the analog of Don and Vicki um, 20 years later' they'd, they'd, you know they'd never harvested a grape before it was all new to them. Um, so I agreed to come back and and um, and kind of show them the well, the institutional memories. I mean, there's some bespoke equipment back there that, that Dawn had kind of built, you know, um, that even if you hired a, a, an experienced winemaker, they'd say, well, I've never seen that before. I've, <laughs> I have no idea how that works. So, um, so it was good in that respect. And, you know, I'd been an educator. I'd worked at, at Chemeketa College in the Wine Studies program as well. So I enjoy, you know, like teaching people about, um, Wine and the wine business, so it was a, I think it was a great opportunity, and we've had a. We've had a great time um, these last three years, getting them up and up and running, and and learning about the the wine business. So
1: I'm curious about with the background you had, obviously high science background. What what was the science of winemaking like after that?
2: Well, I mean, it's more. I mean, I was I was a microbiologist before, so this is you know I had to I had to go back and kind of relearn the chemistry of of wine. Um, it's still good to know. You know, I think it's a good foundation to have to be a microbiologist. Um, I have said that that you know people always ask, is it science or is it art? Right, and the answer is well, it's, it's both. It's you know, it's always good to have kind of a stylistic ideal that you're looking to achieve until something goes wrong and then you really need a good foundation in chemistry and microbiology to get you out of the hole that, <laughs> that you that you find yourself in. So, um, you know, uh, the microbiology part, it's good to know, to be able to recognize when something is growing in your, you know, in your ferment or in your wine and maybe, be able to, I mean, now we can just send off and get a scorpion and know immediately you know, oh, I've got 50,000 colonies per mill of, you know, pediococcus. That's bad. Um, but, you know, in the old days you had to kind of put a slide under the microscope and go oh, is there, you know, is there a funky looking fungus in there? You know, is there a yeast that I don't want to be in there? Or is there, you know, tiny little Coxie, are they tiny little balls that are, you know, bacteria or rods or... Um, and just to know that, you know, turbidity and smells and, and things like that. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the real learning that I've done that I, you know, in the last 10 years has been um, really kind of the chemistry of wine and the, the, the interplay of acid and, and phenolics and, and and then how to control them so that they, they kind of end up where you want them to end up given this starting thing that's very complicated you know. Um, that, that again you have this kind of stylistic ideal and some of it can be you know in pick decisions in terms of ripeness and sugar, but also, you know, where do you want this wine to land at the end? In terms of like kind of titratable acidity, which is that vibrancy, um, or um, alcohol, and you know, because that also has downstream effects in terms of body and and um, and things. So that's been the that's been the fascinating part, is to see how all the different. Um, the different chemistries work together. That, that you know, the more acidic it is, the 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 more it kind of accentuates the 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 astringency. The tannin and acid don't play nicely together, um, and that and that, uh, that a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Sugar makes everything better, right? So sugar, you know, sugar makes acid seem less acidic. Sugar makes tannin seem less tannic. Um, it's kind of a three-legged stool.
1: So, from that, tell me about sort of de- developing a winemaking style or 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 a goal. You mentioned kind of having a style in mind that you have yeah. to you have to plan for. What? How would you describe your style?
2: You know, f- starting back at the restaurant in New York City, I was exposed to to Burgundies from the '70s and '80s, right? And so, um, I guess I like I liked the wines that were um, kind of acid driven um i am a sucker for that, that that kind of meaty characteristic i mean it used to be you you see it a lot more in that the wines kind of from the 80s um, and so i find those wines very attractive and so i've i don't know actually you know necessarily how to achieve that, but the wines that I've liked making most have had those characteristics. They've been kind of earthy, Um, very savory. I love the savory wines over kind of the, the fruit of the, you know, the baking spices, nutmeg and clove. And so, you know, some of that is just don't pick as ripe so that the fruit isn't the first thing that you perceive. I like it if the wines can be anything they want to be. So each year they're different and you just kind of let them let them become what they want to become. I don't have a very strong hand like, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, you have to be this. When they come in, they just become what they want to become. I guess my job is to, you know, they can be whatever they want to be, they just can't go to jail, right? And so my job is just to kind of you know, you know, that's a bad crowd you're hanging out with, you know, let's, let's get back over here a little bit. And so I really, in terms of style, yeah, there's some wine making decisions on, on pick days and, and and you know, kind of sugar acid balance. But once it comes in, I don't have a, you know, I just let them become their, their own thing. And they're all really, you know, they're so interesting. They're, and you never know from year to year what—that's the beauty of Pinot.
1: So, with the with the wines here, at, when it was Vidon and then at, and then going to Aloro, was there a, a big shift for you, and kind of this point in making wine at the
2: second place? Oh yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, again, because I think you know Dawn is self-trained. You know, people always ask, you ask, how'd you learn about wines? You'd always say, oh, well, you know, there are books on the subject. So, uh, you know, Don, Don just kind of, and Don was always very interested in, like, you know, just kind of figuring it out for himself, because that's his, that's, you know, that's Don. Um, Whereas, whereas Tom was a, you know, is a very rigorous um, Davis-trained winemaker, and so I, I think they have two very different outlooks on on how to make wine. And 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 um, Tom, I would say, has a much more um, when we talk about stylistic. He has a stylistic ideal. That he's going for, and it was really interesting to see how he applied things to get to that, you know, to get to get to the wine that he envisioned. Um, and Tom's a he's a very careful winemaker. I, I I learned you know so much from him about um, again. I think this is a common thing. You know, quality control. You know. Um, cleanliness, you know, making, you know, making sure you taste everything before you, you know, put, you know, Tom has a very regimented way of doing things, um, that I appreciated and I have, you know, kept and adopted for my own.
1: And then you mentioned obviously retiring and then unretiring, yes. de-retiring. So tell me about, tell me about coming back and working, working with Drew and Aaron. Oh, well that was,
2: I mean, that's been fun. Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic experience because, um, you know, it it was the, it was the opposite thing. I was, you know, I felt like I was from Dawn and Tom I was learning, I was a sponge, I was learning about wine making and then I got to turn all that on its head and now I was, you know, I was the person who was teaching me that first year at Rex Hill, where you know it's like this is a pump, <laughs> you know this is, <laughs> um, and so that was that was fantastic, um, and it was great to see. I mean, they're like I, I could see the same things, you know. They they were they were like these sponges, you know, like everything was new and it was all very exciting. You could see on their faces, you know, it's just they were thrilled, um, and that's a thrilling thing too. And it's like that's the, you know, in academia that's the. That's the reward, right? The, the, the when you see the light bulb come on, you know, in someone in the class. That's the, that's like the moment of discovery in the, in the lab. And so, you know, for the first harvest, is like every day was like that, right? You know, just explaining the basics of, you know, this is what's gonna, this is what's gonna happen. This is, you know, like I say, they're the analog of Don and Vicky 20 years later. You know, they're keen. They're 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 all in you know drew is out there on the tractor just like Dawn was you know like every day he's out there in the vineyards you know paying attention that's the you know so that's a that's a fantastic thing so
1: i want to back up a minute to when you when you first got here tell me about your initial impressions of the wine industry here and of the people making wine here
2: oh Yeah, well, again, I mean, I was coming from academia, so I didn't have any, you know, other than like you know, the winemakers that I had met on travels when I was a wine buyer in New York City and like out to Napa and things like that. I had no real, you know, and that's a completely different. That's a very artificial experience, right? You, they they let you see a little bit, but just what they want you to see, right? Um, But yeah, I mean, the coming to the valley and. Starting to meet some of the the characters, um, it was beyond my expectations. I think. Um, I mean, I remember Sonoma from like the '80s, and that was you know it had this reputation for you know it was just a bunch of farmers then, where Napa even then was you know this kind of very corporate you know. And I think when I got here, this was like you know. Even earlier in Sonoma, it was, everybody seemed to kind of know everybody. They all were friendly with everybody. I thought that, you know, I guess the collegiality was the thing that really struck me and continues to this day that, you know, we still borrow each other's equipment. You know, I know that if, you know, if my pump breaks, I know someone I can call and, you know, Get theirs for the afternoon, and you know where else? What other business? You would have to sign an NDA, you know. To, <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. It's, we, you know, we still have lunch together at, you know, at the Dory or you know, beers at the, uh, you know, Wolves and People. You yeah, know, that's been the thing. I mean, I, you know, I had, I had lunch yesterday with the original winemaker that I worked with. that just. You know, we still we're still friends. We still <laughs> we still keep up with each other. Yeah, yeah. No, it's still it, it's it's fantastic. It's still just a bunch of farmers. That's the all trying to make it work. And and the fact that we share with each other. You know, that that the the steamboat conference, the original steamboat conference. Everybody brought the "Don't let this happen to you" bottle. You know, and shared it like. You know, this happened to me, either why or do something else. You know, I learned that to do this other thing and let everyone else know. That's the, you know, so that we all make better wine um, and that continues to this day. We just had the kind of the resurrection of the steamboat meeting over in the over in the valley two weeks ago. Yeah.
1: And I know that your. You're kind of uh, coming to the end of this. The second, the second time as a winemaker here. Yeah. Um, so, what are you? What's your? What's your kind of next step for you?
2: Well, um, lots more mountain biking. Um, I do. So I, you know, I, I have enjoyed academia. Um, aspects of academia. Um, And I think I would like, so I, yeah, I have an idea um, for uh, an educational experience um, that I would like to, that I'm still kind of fleshing out. Um, But I could see in the coming years um, this, uh, a small group educational experience that I would run. Um, I I really, I can't can't say anything more about it right now because it's... Yeah, it's still IP, (laughs) but that is my, in 2019 when when I left, I did, I started this, I I started a little LLC, I had a little consulting business going, and I had the the kernel of this same idea back then, and I was just starting to to put it together, and then the pandemic destroyed it um, because it would require Small groups of strangers to get together in a little room. <laughs> so for two years, I was like, "Yeah, no, this is not gonna, <laughs> this is not gonna happen." Um, but I think now it can happen again. So that's kind of my next. Uh, and I, I've done a little work, consulting work, for a couple other winemakers in the valley, and so I would like to, you know, I'd like to stay. Near the wine business, you know, it's still fascinating. Every day I learn something. Every year we always say, "Oh, I haven't seen that before." <laughs> There's always something, whether it's frost or smoke or yeah. heat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's been a wild few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but still, I mean, with very few exceptions, still some really exciting wines coming out. I mean, you know. After all the heat in '21, you know, no, we—who knew, right? What was going to happen? And yet, I think those wines—they're all really, uh, they're delicious. And the '22s, you know, the frost. Everyone, we all thought we were going to—we all thought we lost our entire crop. You know, what we were going to do? And then, I think the '22s are some of the best wines that that we've made in the valley for maybe '14 was, you know, yeah, you now '17. Yeah, there's some, there's some pretty good vintages, but, you know, we, a priori, you never would have guessed. You would have said, oh, are we going to salvage 30% of our crop, and what's it going to look like? And then it comes in, and it's 90% or maybe 110% of what you thought you were going to get, and super tasty, delicious. Um, yeah, I'm excited about the, the 22s. They're really kind of coming together, yeah.
1: What about for the future of the Oregon wine industry? What, what, do, you, what do you see? What do you maybe hope for or, or what do you maybe fearful of as you look
2: ahead? Well, oh, God, what, what do I hope for? I hope we just keep making, you know, I hope it doesn't get too hot here. You know, I've seen in the last 12 years that just the, the progressive, you know, difference in terms of kind of harvest dates and, and you know, getting creeping earlier and earlier, although this year, you know, it's looking like it. You know, we've kind of moved the clock back to um, you know 2010, 2011 again because of our late uh, our late spring and flowering being being late. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope we can continue to make great Pinot here because it is so special. I mean, it does. It's different from Burgundy and it's different from from um, from the Central of Otago or Martinborough in New Zealand, um, it's its own, you know, fascinating thing, and I just hope we're able to continue um, to progress and and make even better Pinots because we've been on this upward trajectory for thirty years now. I mean, I remember, you know, some of the some of the early um, tastes that I had in New York of you know of um, very early Oregon wines, and you know the they had the opposite problem. The harvests were so hard, you know it was so hard to get things ripe that you know it was like every third year you'd have you know some. You, where it would really all come together. And here we've completely flipped that around, you know, where we get these huge, ripe wines year after year. And so my hope would be we'd switch back to some, you know, 2012 again, Uh, (laughs) that would be nice, or 28. I mean, 08 was a, um, tasted some of those wines. They're just, they're delicious. Um, I mean, I, I hope, I hope everybody continues to, you know, that it just grows and we continue to be able to, you know, make money and get the, get the wines out there um, and that it doesn't, I don't, you know, that we continue to just be a bunch of farmers. <laughs> That's the, and I know there's, you know, there's, there's two countervailing things going on there that, you know, if you're all just a bunch of small little farmers, you know, can you ever make enough to make it work, right, but I don't know. Hopefully, there's tension in there that it doesn't, everybody doesn't get gobbled up by someone big who can then have the, the kind of the capital to, to keep it going, but does it lose its, you know, this small, um, intimate thing that we've had for so long? That's, I think that makes it so special. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? Do you want to talk more about yeast? We can talk more about yeast if you want to.
2: <laughs> no, that was a long and winding road. That was. Uh...
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Congratulations on your upcoming re-retirement. Re, 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 re yeah. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, and we'll let you off the hook. Excellent. Thank you.